and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast Summer Series. This is the podcast all about slow living in summer or winter. Winter warming series. <laughs> My name is Brooke. My name is Ben. Welcome. This is the second episode in the summer slash winter series. Mm-hmm. And in this episode, we're going all the way back to 151 and... I am going to say this was my favourite episode of the year. Really? Yeah, it really was. It was amazing. And it's on the art of frugal hedonism, not least because of that name, mm-hmm. but because of our wonderful guest, Annie Razor Roland. Annie was awesome. How good was she? Remember, we were in Melbourne mm-hmm. and we recorded this in the Melbourne City Library. Mm-hmm. And it it just came at exactly the right time mm. for us in our lives, didn't it? Mm. Like it really, really did. I I reflect on this conversation a lot still. It was nine months ago that we sat down with Annie and she's just one of those people, I think, who has a, I was going to say a magnetism, which she does, but I think the reason she has it is because she shows up. Like she looks in your eyes when you speak and she's, Someone who is practiced and continues to practice in the art of being present in everything, like her her senses. And you can tell just by the way she speaks, the language she uses. It's so impassioned. And, oh, it's extraordinary. But she's also like no BS either. Yeah. You know, she calls oh, yeah. it like she sees it. And yeah. it, it's really wonderful. This is one of the episodes that we had probably the most feedback on. People often refer to it as one of their favorite episodes when Yeah, when we were doing the live podcast recording, the amount of people that came up and said I'd loved the conversation with Annie and mm. discovering Annie and what she's done. So it it was a yeah, a game changer for for both of us. Well, I remember we were in the cab on the way home. So we were, had been in Melbourne for a couple of meetings, happened to be able to meet Annie while we were there. And this is one of the first face-to-face interviews that we had done and I loved it. I loved it. I can't wait to do more of them. But we we were in the cab on the way to the airport that afternoon and you, I mean, you always enjoy the conversations, but you were really taken with. Mm. I was, I felt very, I remember there was a huge, a strong emotion that like I was like, oh, this has changed my perspective on things. Uh, this is someone operating at a whole different level that I didn't even know existed. She's yeah, she takes countercultural and just ramps it up, N- and not for the sake of being different or countercultural, but because she sees the wisdom in the way she does things and and the insanity of the opposite, you know. And I yeah, I just think it's it's awesome. I will say there is there was some construction going on when we were doing the recording, so it is probably a little noisier than you'd be used to. I apologise for that, but yeah. how bizarre! We were in a library, yet the noise in the background. Well, that's why was we the book, booked the library because <laughs> we thought it would be quiet. But as it turns out, the library was in the middle there of. There was also some so. um, post-production audio issues as well originally. So another reason why we wanted to come back to this episode and share it because there was a lot of people that found it was uh, this just didn't sound right at the start. So you know, a perfect one to revisit, even if it's for the first time. Yeah, exactly. If you wanted to find out more about Annie, her wonderful book, The Art of Frugal Hedonism, uh, frugalhedonism.com is her website. Head over to slowyourhome.com slash 151. Before we get into Annie's conversation, I just wanted to let you know that 
Simple Year 2018 is open for registration at the moment. We had the early bird uh, a couple of months ago, but full registration is open now. So if you head over to slowyourhome.com, the, the top of the page, any page, you'll see join Simple Year 2018. If you just click over there, you can find out who is presenting this year. But just to give you an insight, uh, I'm doing the January session. We've got Courtney Carver, Kate Flanders, The Minimalists, uh, Mark and Angel Chernoff. Uh, we've got... That's pretty good off the top of your head. It is. <laughs> it is literally off the top of my head. <laughs> it's This is the, the fourth year I've been involved and it is... Kate eight, Flanders? Yeah, I, I'm sure I said Kate. Oh, did you? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a fantastic year-long guided course in simplicity. So we cover decluttering, we cover finances, you know, simplifying your money, work, digital clutter. Tammy Strobel does the digital clutter. Jules Clancy also runs a couple of uh, months modules. You can relationships, mindfulness. There's so many wonderful areas of simple living that that we cover in the course. So if you'd like to learn more, just head over to slowyourhome.com and uh, click the join simple year 2018 button in the menu. And uh, in the meantime, enjoy this conversation with Annie. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I'm going to apologize straight off the bat for any background noises that you're going to hear and everyone's going to hear. We're at a library. I figured it would be a you know fairly quiet place to record, but uh, it's also a library situated in a construction zone. So yeah, it's, it'll be fine. It will be fine. I'm really glad it'll you're here. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just uh, incorporate the noises into like some sort of rap form of that's conversation. Exactly right. Yeah, the, the yeah. backbeats. Yeah, that's it. We've yeah. got like a laughing group of people next to us at the top. Such a Joie de vivre. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, no, but thank Which you. is the theme of the book, so it's, it's perfect, you know what? in I fact. I feel like they're just laughing with, with us. It, it's, it's you and I, seriously. Um, but no, thank you so much for joining me and um, bringing your enormous backpack of, yeah, great of to goods talk. with you because you're heading off camping in a minute. I am heading off camping. I'm going to go hop straight on a train when I when I leave. That's you, awesome. So like you said, when we first met, you're like, I'm just doing this to prove a point. Yeah, it's a prop. Yeah, it's a promotional <laughs> prop for talking about the book and all the liberty it gives you, how much you get to just, you know, skive off work and get away yep. Yeah, when you don't spend much money. and I appreciate your commitment yeah. to the prop. <laughs> <laughs> I want to start by asking you about this idea of um, frugal hedonism, which is your book, The Art of Frugal Hedonism. But the thing that I love the most about it is the juxtaposition between frugality and like my initial reaction to that word is one of scarcity and, you know, going without yeah. and hedonism, which is excess and yes. you know, self-indulgence. And obviously they're complete opposites, but when they come together, they make yes. something really joyful. Even just saying it makes me smile. Like, <laughs> I absolutely love it as, a, as an idea. I think it's phenomenal and there's just, there's joy in it. Well, obviously, that's the reaction yeah. we were hoping for, um, and that that would set off a chain of questions in people's heads that the book then answers of what does this mean to have more and to feel a sense of richness and abundance and succulence 
while being a frugal consumer. Mm. And it sounds like a gimmick almost, putting such an oxymoronical title, but it really wasn't. It was a natural response to the fact that when I first started really consciously trying to consume a lot less, I think I was kind of born stingy. I was okay. brought up by a mum where we never threw a single scrap of food out. Everything yeah. was, you know, I was single parent, a lot of reasons to want to save money. And a natural sort of, I think she had quite an aesthetic bent mm-hmm. for the cleanness and the, the spareness and the focus of not wasting things. And yeah. I think I have inherited that on that aesthetic level but there was definitely a point where I developed a lot more of an environmental conscience Mm -hmm. and wanted to consume a lot less in response to that and I started making concerted efforts to cut back areas of where I was buying things and the perception of lots of the people that I hung out with was so this whole swag of adjectives that were to do with dourness and deprivation and restraint. And I was finding the response quite confusing because that wasn't what I was experiencing at all. Mm. And this is coming from someone who was quite bombastic and still is in my sort of desire to grab life by the throat and squeeze everything out of it possible. I know that sounds like a slightly cruel metaphor. Um, <laughs> grab life by the hand and yeah. dance with it exuberantly. Um, I could probably do better. But I didn't feel like there was any shift from that, you know, maybe the late teens, early 20s version of myself who was out partying all night and uh, making outrageous costumes to wear to events and hitchhiking around the country and, you know, eating strange diets I composed for myself that were nothing but blue cordial and and uh, cheese sandwiches for a week or something as self-experiments to this version of me that actually felt as full of uh, surreal pleasure and excess and art and lust for life as a higher consumption version mm. had felt. And yet all of my more artistic friends seemed to perceive that because I was suddenly never buying a cup of coffee and always had a little jar of coffee in my bag when I came to work at the the fashion shop that I worked in at that point, or that I suddenly said, I'm not going to buy any new clothes, I'm just going to buy second-hand clothes, Mm. or that as they were all starting to buy cars and could afford it, I was like, no, I... I love catching public transport around the city and reading books and staring at people, that none of it felt impoverishing. And yeah. so the the book was this real response to to want to say, if I'm not finding this to fit the common stereotype of frugality, what is happening here? Mm. And is there things that can be applied culturally where you find that consuming less actually feels like you've got a much richer life Mm. and then the process of starting to nut out what some of the philosophies that make that possible and the actual crunchier lifestyle habits that make it possible to feel like you're really living it up yeah what I love about the book is that you like you marry those two things like you pull out philosophies like real threads of of like a mindset and a way of, of viewing things with and you marry them with practicalities and I think that's awesome because people I mean, we want to be inspired like people I think are 
questioning maybe maybe they are maybe it's a confirmation bias just because I'm talking to more people who are questioning but I feel like people are starting to question more what's life actually about? Is it about, you know, the constant kind of consumption and, and, and you know, amassing of things or yeah. is it about the experiences? Uh, and I think people are starting to shift very much towards the experiences. But, um, you know, so they'll read something about a philosophy like yours and then they'll want to say, like, how do I do that? Yeah. You know, and it's the how that we get stuck on. Yeah. And that's what I love about what you did. So how, I mean, I guess all of that is based on your own experience, but how hard was it to kind of simplify something that could be really quite complex for people to start to adopt? Well, it is based on my own experience and that of my ex-partner, Adam Grubb, who is the co-author of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, We'd also previously written another book about edible and medicinal weeds in Australia. Which is so cool. Um, Yeah, very, very fun to write. It's supposed to be a horrible thing, co-authorship, but we actually just... You enjoyed en- it. Enjoyed it. So it's both of our experiences, but you don't want to create a whole lot of instructions for exactly. a huge sector of the community based on two people's experience. So we did spend quite a lot of time interviewing people. Mm-hmm. Um, and because we don't have kids, we interviewed people with kids. Yeah because that felt crucial because that's obviously a big game changer for lots of people in terms of how much they feel pressured to consume and how much they feel like they have time to be mindful of life's cheaper pleasures. Mm. Um, Although in that way, lots of people actually who were really good at it commented that having kids is one of the best excuses for being really mindful of cheap pleasures because you've got these little examples there who are drawing your attention back to that type of pleasure all the time ants and the clouds and the trees and the flowers and the why like the question of why yeah why do they why do they do that i actually don't know let's go find out like yeah yeah i I agree yeah and i mean right there then curiosity is one of the points in the book that we talk about is using curiosity and the novelty of gaining new information and how that can be quite a good replacement for the novelty of consumption Mm. and that's so often what we're looking for when we want to buy something or go try a new cafe is we just want something new because we're hardwired as animals to seek novelty because it helps to introduce possibly useful aspects into our lives and we're always going to want that but if you're in a cultural setup that says the way you get that novelty is to troll Zomato and see which restaurants got the best new combination of salumi and uh, a foam of something. Um, then you go, oh, that sounds novel. I'm going to go do that. But if you if you reframe novelty in the way that kids can be so great at, of going, ah, oh, I just discovered about aphids getting parasitized. That's fascinating. Because the kids have dragged me out and gone, why are all these little aphids on the back of the leaf all puffed up and hollow and you can see inside their bodies and then you research that. And it can it can actually really satiate a lot of that. So that's an example of the kind of thing there's a lot of in the book is redirecting some of the things that our culture has trained us to try and seek out via consumption mm. and to seek them out in other ways that have nothing to do with consumption. Because often it's not the consumption we're actually wanting, it's the satisfaction of a base human urge of some other kind, like the seeking of novelty. But sorry, I did just get completely off track. Um, 
so we interviewed a lot of people for the book and made a point of interviewing some people that had lived through the depression mm. um which was quite hard at this point actually <laughs> but that was hugely enlightening mm. all by itself talking about how much pleasure they got from predictable rituals. So it wasn't about needing to up the ante by going to a, you know, a flashier place for holiday each year, that it was about that expectation, anticipation of going back to that same favourite camping spot every year where they would fish and make a fire and play cards and make rope swings and... Mm. We talked to people, some different cultural backgrounds where they'd grown up in, you know, in one case in sort of quite war-torn area, uh, about how you make pleasure and find pleasure and what provides pleasure when consumption of beyond the bare minimum just isn't even available yeah. as an option. And so we started, tried to extract commonalities from those different generational and cultural backgrounds of what supplies human beings with a sense of wealth and pleasure and play and fun mm. when you're not outsourcing it to to going to a movie or to eating out or to buying some new clothes and it was all very very simple the answers but very robust and really quite easy for most humans to go back to doing without much effort you just need something like a a great pep talk from yeah. a book or from a social circle that spell it out to you because it's stuff that most of us know on yeah. a fundamental level anyway. Exactly. And, you know, it's it's such an interesting question because we do know. Like when you're we talking do. about like relishing something or getting curious, we're like, yeah, well, of course, that makes yeah. perfect sense. But then we go and distract ourselves with other things, yeah. you know, and then we say, well, like that's sad, I don't have time, <laughs> you know. And that's something that I've found a lot of kind of reference to in your book is this issue that people will say – I don't like that's really nice for you but I don't have time and your advice was always like you could have more time if you didn't need as much money (laughs) yeah and I think that that is it is such a simple response and there is so much truth in it and why do you think we don't want to know that why do you think people don't want to see that oh you're asking the hard questions I don't actually think that we don't want to know I think I don't think it's any horrible emotional blockage. I don't think it's anything that complex. I think it's that we are at the mercy of massive cultural mechanisms that have really huge vested interests in telling us that other things will make us happy. I mean, there's even a chapter in the book where we refer to the Epicurean principles of what makes people happy being friendship freedom and time for contemplation so that's as an aside Epicurus despite his reputation was just you know glugging huge bottles of wine and banquets um, that's a very modern bastardization what he was about he was actually really into a spareness of, mm. of consumption but m- mindfully enjoyed so he I think there's a quote we've got in that something like uh, you know a glass of watered wine, a plate of cheese and a good friend with a fine mind or something is all a person needs for the, the best banquet ever. Mm. Um, but Elaine de Botton, the philosopher, cited those Epicurean principles of what makes us happy. 
as something that advertisers refer back to all the time. And there's a billboard that we use as an example in the book that's a beer ad that shows some people sitting on a beach in some deck chairs and they're looking out along the lengths of the beach and they're obviously having a good moment of camaraderie looking at this sunset view and there's someone else maybe like running down the beach and it taps into that thing of friendship, freedom and time for contemplation. And it's what advertisers are doing all the time is they say, these are the things you want as a human being. These are the products you use to get those things. Mm. And it's insidious and there's over a thousand US dollars on average spent on each of us sending those messages every year. And then it has a self-reinforcing effect because you look at what the person next to you is doing to treat themselves or to satisfy their needs for human pleasure. And you go, well, that's obviously the norm. That's how it's done. You watch a movie and it reaffirms as you see people in Hollywood moving around in certain kinds of buildings and homes and certain kinds of spaces. And So I actually, I don't think that we're, we're blocking out mm. any of, of that wonderful stuff we have to fall back on to give ourselves pleasure. I think there's just a huge culture that is slamming it in our face so loudly and repetitively um, that it's almost possible to drown it out. And... That is why I think that moral fortitude is not the way to become a low consumer or doing it because you think it's the right thing to do or because you think it's a good thing to do. I think you need to figure out ways to feel pleasure that you can identify Mm. through other sources and you need things like inspirational books, like you need what religious texts used to provide in history is that Everyday life is distracting and pulls you off in all sorts of directions and you need things like art and books that say these are the values you actually want and spell it out and remind you why, just like people used to go back to a a Bible and Mm. they go to church every week and see the picture of the statue of the Virgin or whatever and look at that statue and go, ah, this reminds me of how I want to be my best self. Mm. It's asking too much of ourselves to become different creatures than what our culture suggests that we do without that backup. And depend just solely on willpower. Yeah. 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 When so you're you, like slammed in the face with Instagram and Facebook and, you know, yeah. all the advertising, 3,000, 4,000 advertising messages a day totally. trying to tell you that actually you're not quite enough. Yeah. Like you're great and everything, but if you had this, you'd be better. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's really hard. It's a really hard message to counteract, yeah. which is. Partly why it was so important to me to make the book something that was seductive mm-hmm. in the same way that that culture is seductive. And, and when you we're, do a, a fantastic job Why, thank you. You really well, do. Like, it's, it's sensual and it's like you can feel it. It's, it's, oh, it, it's so inviting. But and it's not hard. That's the crazy thing. It's like there is so much good to be had. Yeah. Out of, I mean, the fact that I am meeting you with my non-prop backpack, I'm going (laughs) to defend it, (laughs) to go off and sleep on an island for for two nights and that I'll just wander around there, like, looking at the seagulls wheeling around. I'll read a book for probably four hours a day. I'll write down notes maybe about the next project that I'm starting to work on. So there will actually be almost a work component. Mm. I'll think about that a lot. But... I'll sleep for like nine hours a night and 
I can do this because I am frugal mm. and I don't consume very much and the getting there to that place is going to cost me about $4.80 and the same getting back. And the food that I've got in my bag, which will taste amazing to me because I'll be eating it by an ocean cooked over a little camp stove um, after walking all day, will cost me about 90 cents because it's just some organic lentils and rice with a bunch of spices and some you know, home-dried tomatoes chucked in there. To me, that's a really worthwhile payoff. Oh, man. Yeah. To, to get to spend my time in that way. And I can do that kind of thing relatively frequently. And I can also spend time just sleeping in or going and lying in the local park and all of those simple pleasures. Or decide to stay up all night reading a book that I'm totally engrossed in because my work hours are really flexible because I spend about a quarter of the Australian average, yeah. which I never knew until writing the book. It is another, I think, common association with frugality is that people are really penny-pinching and they're always keeping budgets. <laughs> you might have come across a bit of that sort of, you guys are always there like, you know, sorry, exactly. a candle in half. Exactly, and, yeah. Yeah, whereas I, I find it's quite the opposite is that when you habituate yourself to not spending much money, you basically hardly have to think about, think about money. It. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And to me, I would rather be habituated to going, well, I'll buy a coffee out in the world, you know, once a fortnight or something. Mm. But my default is to always just have a, a bottle with my iced tea that I've made at home before I left or whatever. And to me, that's something I'd rather bother thinking about than thinking about money and about yeah. how to make it last and budgeting and... But we did keep budgets for the purpose of the book because we thought... That would have been really interesting. It was very interesting. Yeah. Rather, not budgets, I guess we just wrote down everything we spent. And I don't think that we modified our spending mm -hmm. in response to that at all. I really don't feel like it. And it was quite amazing to go, wow, I feel like I've really not deprived myself of anything for this six months that we kept the budgets for. Adam actually kept his for a year because he likes spreadsheets. <laughs> he just likes putting just things in a spreadsheet. In it, yeah. yeah, he was really just, you know, living it up through the spreadsheet use. But it came out that we spent about a quarter of the Australian average, and that's for man, woman and child. So if you were just saying that adult average, we'd be spending quite a bit less than that. Right. And we set aside housing. We took housing costs out of the equation, mm -hmm. so that was what your average Australian human being spends on life minus housing and hous because housing just distorts it so much whether yep. you're paying off a mortgage or paying rent or... And where you live. And, yep. Yeah. But there's n nothing exceptional about how we go about life or about how some of the other people that we interviewed go about life that enables that level of spending beyond just reframing what counts as normative mm. basically um there's nothing absurd like, yeah. and i think that those kind of tips like those frugal living tips are what people assume they're going to get yeah and it's not at all it's just about a complete shift from like a mindset of scarcity to a mindset of, of abundance yeah and finding so much joy in all of those things that one of the things that really strikes me is like you describe these these experiences and these things that you can do because of the way you live and you've chosen that and you prioritise the way you live in order to have these experiences, they're things that people would 
envy. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's really it's, interesting. It's quite because I mean I think it's envy and keeping up with the Joneses that kind of gets us into this cycle in the first place, and not through like only our own fault. You know, as we were saying, society is kind of set up to keep yeah. us there. But I find it fascinating that you've given up on or not like given up makes it sound like a negative thing, but you know you've you just don't. You don't embrace them. You don't deal with a lot of these things that the people do spend their money on. And as a result, you get this lifestyle that people are like, oh, I wish I had that. Yeah. <laughs> I just find it, it's, it's amazing. And it was realising that that made me went, oh, there's definitely a book here worth writing yes. because I see that there's friends with a lot more money than me who what seem jealous of my lifestyle. Yes. And, <laughs> and they are asking, how are you pulling this off? Yeah. Give us a few tips. Mm. And what were the tips yeah. that you would say, like that you would give your friends first up when they first started asking you? I think one of my first focuses was on food, not because that's necessarily one of the biggest areas, but maybe more in a. I think it's a good baseline psychology changer for people. Yeah, is the sense of not taking food for granted and not wasting food mm. is. It sort of sets you up well to think about your resource use and your consumption on lots of other levels. Yeah. So as soon as you make the mental shift of going, a mango is something that is the ultimate luxury to me, then it enables you a lot better to say, if I'm just going to buy all my clothes secondhand, then finding that amazing dress at Savers sorry but I don't know if we have savers nationwide at the up shop um is is just like the fashion score of my year yeah um instead of going oh it has to feel like I went into somewhere sleek and shiny and someone was a bit sycophantic to me and I spent my weekly income on it to feel like that was an amazing fashion score um so food can be a really good just recalibrator like that and it also nudges you towards being a bit more self-reliant in that you develop those routines around Mm. cooking for yourself a bit more and making that easy and I think self-reliance and that pride in self-reliance is it might sound like work and it is I'm not going to pretend that it's not hard to sometimes remember to have cooked enough food to you know take with you when you're going out to work in the world every every day of the week but the self-reliance of it is a real pleasure as well. Mm. It's, it, it's not quite a hedonistic pleasure, I'd say, but it's, it's a deep pleasure. Satisfying. It's very satisfying. Yeah. yeah. And there's also a real satisfaction in the discovery that you don't need the best thing yeah. to enjoy it because that is something that advertiser, advertising culture is really good at promoting. Mm. And food can be a really great lesson in that, in saying... I was hungry and because I was hungry and I'd used my body today, then I didn't just, you know, what I ate wasn't an amazing spaghetti marinara with a bit of truffle oil. It was a bowl of pumpkin soup that I cooked, but it tasted amazing because I was hungry and I used my body today. And that you don't have to have what you want all the time and yeah. food is... a and there's, there's actually a pride in that, in going, gee, I'd love this huge piece of cake right now. But, you know, it's fine that I don't have it. Mm. It's actually just fine. I think we've gotten so used to this. One of the sneakiest messages you get in advertising a lot is the 
you've deserved it yeah. or you've earned it oh, or yeah. go and treat yourself, go and reward yourself. And we are living in the wealthiest culture with the highest level of convenience throughout the history of humanity. And it's hard to figure out what we've actually done that we need rewarding for or consoling for so constantly except for the stress of living in a culture that requires so much to keep up with and that is essentially the answer so if you take away some of the stress then you need less maybe you need yeah yeah you feel like you deserve less reward and yeah so food is one of the the fundamentals is thinking about how you treat food. it makes so much sense to begin with that because i mean not only does it start to tap you into the idea of self-reliance and but also seasonality and waste and making the most like the absolute most of everything that you have before moving on you know and i think it is a relative easy is not maybe the right word but um relatively kind of cost effective way to introduce people to that as well because we will waste things you know for convenience sake which i think i want to talk to you about convenience too because i think that that's a huge element to um you know the way we spend our money and the way we kind of max our time out knowing that we can tap into this convenience lifestyle and it's going to save us yeah but it's costing us so much too yeah but yeah the, the, the whole food thing makes so much sense to me because i think yeah. i think it's a phenomenal place to start yeah and because you can experiment with very little risk you know because you can try something and say well we're not going to buy anything this week food wise yeah well, let's just use what's in the pantry and i've noticed in your podcast you were doing some experiments, experiments. And I yeah think experiments are, are not just a great mind resetting tool but they are so fun as well yes um because they feel like play yeah um it's like oh here's an arbitrary set of constraints just like you do when you play a board game or something like so they're a great trick for people so experiments around saying yeah we might not buy anything this Mm. week let's use up what's in the pantry and seeing what you learn from that yeah um and it means that you learn simple things to do with well Usually I would have gone and gotten ice cream when I wanted a real treat food thing. But I had this apple Mm. and how do I turn that into more of a treat food? Oh, well, I make sure that I go sit on the sunny side of the street uh, where that hot brick wall has got all the afternoon warmth radiating from it. And instead of just munching it, I like pair it up with a knife Mm -hmm. and I eat each slice one at a time and I look at the clouds while I eat that apple. And you know that you're going to come back from that half hour slowly pairing that apple with a knife with that hot brick wall on your back looking at the clouds. Feeling like that was definitely a treat. No one feels like that's not a treat after they've done it. And the ice cream probably wouldn't even measure up to it, to be honest. But apart from food... Because food is one that I don't like to get too stuck on on the flip side, partly because of the convenience. It's, I don't bake my own bread. I don't make jam. I don't think I'd rather just not eat bread yep. or and eat some rice or something that's a lot faster than that. Yeah. I don't want to spend ages doing self-reliant food stuff that's not – there's simple living books that really focus on that. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not one of those. Mm-hmm. I actually like – been fairly free from that level of preparation which i think is a really i'm really glad you brought that up because i think when people hear about this idea of simple living or slow living or whatever you want to call it um that that's what it is and it's got to be hours spent you know baking your own bread and it totally can be like if that's your jam yeah 
go for so it because I know so yeah. many. Yeah, I know so many people who gain so much pleasure, like genuine pleasure, from yeah. making their own bread. That's tops. Yeah, I'm not one of. Them. I am so not one of them. I mean, yeah, I make kefir, not yogurt, because yeah. kefir is really quick and easy to make compared to yogurt and pretty foolproof. But mostly, I just cook up huge batches of really healthy, delicious food out of cheap organic ingredients and whatever's in the garden and pour a lot of butter or cream or olive Mm -hmm. oil on them and they always taste really good and then you eat that. That's a wealth of like deliciousness. Yeah, Yeah. basically it's hard to go wrong. But getting away from food, cars are another huge one and they are one of the more challenging ones for people to reshape their lives around. But not having a car is a phenomenal money saver Mm. and... It's such a big money saver that I think it's it can be really worth people reconfiguring where they live and their careers around and so on because having a car can cost you up to 20 grand a year yep. once you include depreciation, especially if you then factor in all of those invisible savings like the exercise that you're not getting mm-hmm. and maybe the nature and walking time that you're not getting and yep. the community bonds that you're not building by... Walking past past your neighbour's house and talking to them and then maybe, you know, that same neighbour, you get chatting and they're like, oh, you can borrow my my camping gear when you're going away this weekend so you don't have to go buy it. Like, I just think that there's so much about not having a car that adds up to savings in other Mm. realms aside from the obvious Um, and that it can be really, really worth people questioning the mechanical patterns of their lives and if they can just either cut down their – get rid of one car or – cut down their car use by half or get a much smaller car that hardly uses any fuel. Mm -hmm. But buying stuff secondhand is another really big one. Yeah. And that is partly an environmental decision. But if you look in the bigger loops of things, then making good environmental decisions is a hedonism of its own kind, Mm -hmm. of course, in that there's nothing more delightful than getting to go swim in a river that smells pretty and is shiny rather than is all polluted yeah um so it's a slightly longer scale hedonistic thinking but there is a lot of i don't strictly only buy things secondhand Mm -hmm. but i try and make it the the default yeah and you automatically save a hell of a lot of money and Um, even just by cutting way 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 back on consumption you know and the things that you do buy yeah you intentionally choose to own you know and you use for their full life cycle and the idea of mending or you know passing on or or whatever it is that you can do to kind of extend that to its very end yeah like absolutely if if no other change is made than that i think that that's you know that's going to be massive anyway and then add secondhand and and other things to that well yeah i mean secondhand stuff is great in that it almost absolves you from the Mm -hmm. entire grueling decision-making process of buying something ethical Mm. because there is nothing more ethical than the product that already existed like it doesn't yeah it's it's a beautiful get out of jail free card is if it already existed then you're not using any child labor for it or any energy resources for it if it was going to maybe go to a tip or go in the bin or just go become unloved then to use that is is you sort of don't even have to think about all of that mm. ethical moral background to the product, which is 
Which is, it's like, it's just, it's Usually. like horrifying when we start to think and understand where like our stuff comes from and yeah. who's behind the production of them. And yeah, I think without a doubt, like secondhand is no question. It's completely the most ethical yeah. choice, you know. Um, I want to go back to something that you said about um, the environment, you know, and how that is really like the most hedonistic choice that you can like reason that you can choose this yeah. kind of lifestyle. And I couldn't agree more. I think for me, one of the things I'm most passionate about is trying to encourage people to care about the environment, the state of the planet, by just getting them out into it. Because I don't, yeah. I, I think it's really hard to get people to care if they don't understand it. You know, if they haven't smelt that that fresh water yeah. smell, if they haven't, you know, sat next to the river, if they haven't climbed the mountain, yeah. if they haven't been to the beach. Mm. Um, do you spend like do you spend a lot of time outdoors? Yeah, huge amount. Um, I think that probably came out of being a pretty feral kind of teenager and wanting to just, you know, go hitchhiking all over the country, like yeah. I mentioned, and, and go, wow, it's really nice being in the desert slash mountains slash rainforest. Like, it's just good. And then, of course, there's tidal waves of science crawling in saying, well, the more time you spend in nature, the, the happier you generally are. Yeah. Um, so there's good backup for it on that level. But that's, I mean, I do prefer to approach it from the hedonistic level mm. of it just feels so good to swim in an ocean. Yeah. Or to, like, seriously, lying in sunshine, I think maybe one of the most underrated pleasures yeah. in the world. And people forget to do it so All much. The time. Just go lie in some sun, people, and mm. let your bones melt away from each other and get a bit of drool come out of the corner of your mouth. Really Maybe give it. roll over, look at the sky, uh, sort of go, oh, I'm not sure if I'm burning my retina out. Is this advisable by my optometrist? But oh. it's sort of nice making all those funny circles overlap against the sky and I feel a bit dizzy and... My brain's going to magical places that I thought I needed drugs for. And there's, there's a lot to be said for lying in the sunshine. Yeah. So it's not like you even need to go out into faraway nature to, mm -hmm. to experience that. But I think the sense almost emerging, it's, it's a shame. It used to be like the wilderness mm. was seen as something where tough people went. And now it's almost with the advent of glamping mm -hmm. and so on, it's almost become something that type A personalities with really busy lifestyles go do as the accessory to their well-rounded lifestyle. And I'm, Like it's the I'm, wellness element. Yeah, of, it's the wellness element. Yeah. I'm scared of that cultural trend mm. and really hope that more people realise that it's just a really cheap way to go get pleasure yeah. and health and fun and relaxation and to lash it up. Yeah. Um, like remove all the complication yeah. and just go and do it. And know? it's a great babysitter. That was something that came out with interviewing people with uh, kids is they were like, best thing for being stingy with kids, if you're going to be a frugal parent, just spend as much time with other parents taking all the kids into somewhere where there's some level of natural environment yep. and it doesn't matter if it's like an ugly overgrown section of the nearest creek <laughs> to your house just tell them go look at the stuff exactly and they become a pack and they look after each other and 
as we all know and say in those funny nostalgic tones of voice as if it couldn't still happen whereas it could totally still happen those were the best times of all of our childhoods um and you can see how happy kids are when yeah. they have that now and that is essential for them to then not feel scared of the bigger wilder nature too as they get older um which is then essential in motivating them to want to look after that absolutely I, we took um, our kids for a really like a fairly short bush walk three weekends ago it'd been raining in sydney for two weeks and there's this area you probably know in the katoomba um katoomba falls yeah and it was it's just the most delightful place after all this rain it was like a mud bath the whole thing and it still was the best fun I've yeah. had in so long. In fact, long. the mud was probably a bonus. It was the best. Like, it was amazing. Yeah. You know, yeah. And there was like rain falling through the trees on us and there was mist every, and it was muddy and it was slippery and we fell over. And I, I honestly felt like I had a holiday. Yeah. That, that one hour. You yeah. Know? And we'd been kind of like at each other that morning and, you know, just like edgy. Yeah. Like, let's just go. See, what you just said there is a beautiful theme that, we do tap into in the book. There's not quite a whole chapter on it, but there's a section of one of the chapters about being able to turn smaller life events into travel or holidays. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's it's a beautiful skill in a frugal living sort of toolkit is you go, what is that thing? Because people too often go, oh, going to the movies might be that thing mm. or going out to eat might be that thing. But what are those kind of things that make me feel like I just escaped all the usual structures and rules of life but didn't require much energy or time investment or in the case of frugal hedonism you want them to not have required much financial or consumer Mm -hmm. input either and something like that is completely perfect or even going there's a torrential rainstorm we're going to say all right everyone shoes off yeah Let's walk up and down the street in our 90s or whatever we're happy to get wet in and splosh along the gutters for half an hour and be drenched and then come back in and rub each other down with big rough towels. And you feel like usual life has fallen away and you have to develop the habit of, of honing in on those moments and the potential to jump into them because it keeps you feeling like that, that, non-consumer life is Mm. something really diverse and rich and eclectic there's so much there to hone in on and tap into but we so often forget to do it there's one example in the book of a slightly more epic adventure that we give where we decide to walk all night from the edge of the city to the outskirts of the city to the very final train line and that was I mean that was not something that you're necessarily going to do with the whole family but it took us one night and it didn't cost any money except for the train journey back into the city and the cost of the sandwiches that I packed when we left as the sun was setting at about 6.30. And I think we realised we walked 45 kilometres in that night. Wow. Um, and we saw, like, how the phase of the city changed as the, you went through the inner suburbs to the outer suburbs and then through light industrial areas and starting to get the first horses appearing. And we had lots of funny little adventures along the way of, you know, walking up some alleyway where we could smell this amazing floral smell and there was these huge night-blooming flowers there. And um, 
getting stuck reading every piece of signage on a shop window in the far <laughs> outer suburbs that were in the worst English conceivable and trying to th- figure out what any of them possibly meant and uh, almost walking straight into a cow in the as we were crossing this little rail bridge coming right to the end of the line. And that was one night and we came back and felt like we'd been away for a week, yeah. seriously. And there's so much potential in everyone's lives to create those moments of magicality or of just departure from routine Mm. and pragmatic brain because that is so often what we are looking to escape when we go buy something is it feels like the balance of life can be so much in favor of the things that need doing and the repetitive things and we have as i've as we've mentioned this marketing machine that says put some magic back into your life by buying (laughs) this thing this glamorous thing going to this shiny shiny shopping mall taking this expensive holiday doing this incredibly expensive adventure sport uh whatever it is it's going to it's going to tip the balance of your life from feeling mundane and full of necessary things that you kind of wish you didn't have to do so much of into something that feels shiny. Mm. And you don't need those things to escape. You just need a bit of creativity mm. that we all have. It's a phenomenal thing and it's yeah. it's not easy, you know. Um, we did a play experiment last year and I found it really kind of challenging how challenging I found it because I was like we'd started a business and I was like down in heavy life stuff and had forgotten you know and it's doing things like going out in the rain and splashing in the mud and playing Monopoly with the kids at like nine o'clock in the morning and just fun stuff like just getting over the things that feel heavy and, and letting go of them when we don't need to to be bogged down in them and there's something so affirming in it I think it's it's really beautiful yeah yeah when you do it you're like oh this feels pretty so right good. So <laughs> yeah. good. but there is always I mean we're grown-ups with lots of stuff we have to take care of there's sure. always phases where you will just have to be nose to the grindstone yep. but the important thing is is once you've done it a few times it's felt that like grinding of gears as you try and shift into it's okay to do non-necessary things again that was a really intense week and I feel strangely a bit uncomfortable and guilty to just do this useless playful luscious thing now but the gears do grind for the first couple of moments but you settle into it pretty quickly don't give up we are yeah don't give up we are very well designed to enjoy that Mm. kind of stuff if you just persist a little bit yeah Thank you so much. My pleasure. This has been wonderful. I'm oh, just like I've really had good. literally a big grin on my face. You the whole have, time. it's true. You've got a lovely grin, by the way. But thank you. I appreciate your time yeah. so much, and enjoy your um your camping trip. Yeah. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.